the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back, Hotel Bar Sessions listeners. My name is Lee Johnson, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Rick Lee and Jason Reed. And today, we are talking about fan culture. But before we do that, let's get some drink orders and some rants and raves. So, Rick, I'm going to go to you first. What are you drinking? I'm feeling fancy today, so I'm going to have a Cure Royale. And today, I am raving about smoked meats. So a couple of years ago, I bought a smoker. I finally put it together at the beginning of this summer, and I have been smoking everything there is. I smoked a head of cauliflower. I've smoked (laughs) turkey. I've smoked ribs. I've smoked beef. I just love the process of doing it, you know, take some attention and some time. And then it just is so, so delicious in the end. And I have to shout out to you, Lee, because you once bought me a gift pack from a barbecue joint in Memphis, and in that gift pack was a rub, and my God, is it really delicious. So (laughs) I've been rubbing that on a lot of pork over here. I'm a fan of the low and slow myself. Yeah. Jason, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you smoking? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have a margarita. And I'm going to rave about the TV show Detroiters. I have raved earlier about I Think You Should Leave, the Tim Robinson sketch show on Netflix. And because that only comes out once a year, and because I'm a closet Trekkie, and I have Paramount+, Plus, I ended up watching his previous show, which ran on Comedy Central around 2016 with Sam Davidson, called Detroiters. And it's just a charming show to watch. I mean, Tim Robinson and Sam Davidson have been friends for years, and it really shows. But it's also a love letter to their city, Detroit, where they grew up. And as someone who grew up outside of Cleveland, I kind of relate to that whole former glorious industrial revolutions, now Rust Belt City feel. And it's also a love letter to local because they play local ad people. So it's a lot about like local TV personalities and the weird charm of late night commercials for local furniture superstores. <laughs> it's just a charming show to watch. So Lee, what do you have and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm just going to have a whiskey today, but I'm going to call it a whiskey royale because that seemed to work for Rick. <laughs> and in keeping with the episode theme and you guys, I am going to rave about something that I'm a fan about, fan conspiracy theories. In particular, I'm talking about the way that fans make up backstories to novels and films and television show characters, etc. I mean, normally it's something like who was actually gay or who was actually whose brother or father or whatever. But today I want to focus on a fan theory that I recently heard, which was about The Breakfast Club. Do you guys remember this? 1985? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the theory is that Allison, played by Ali Sheedy, Like, none of it happened. It all happened in her mind, which is why all the characters in the film are these sort of one-dimensional stereotypes, and it's why at the end she gets the makeover and the boyfriend and all of that sort of (laughs) stuff. Anyway, I went way down this rabbit hole, and it was fantastic. So (laughs) keep it going, fans. Keep those conspiracy theories coming. So, Jason, I know we are talking about fan culture and fandom and fans today, but how did you want to go about this? 
Yeah, so for a long time, the image of the fan and fan culture was summed up by an infamous skit by William Shatner on SNL, in which he implores the Trekkies to get a life. <laughs> to be a fan was to be a passive stooge of the culture industry, one who mindlessly buys its products and memorizes its trivia at the expense of their own creativity and ultimately their own life. Gradually, however, this image began to change. The field of cultural studies demanded that we see fans not just as passive recipients of the culture industry, but active producers who create their own interpretations, their own meaning, with fan fiction, cosplay, creativity, and their own activities by poaching the commodities of culture. Later, however, the division between official product and consumption had broken down in a different way as fan activity especially fan activity online, has become integral to marketing and maintenance of the value of intellectual property. Fans rapidly defend their favorite franchises online, harassing critics and anyone seen to deviate from canon. Susan Scott has dubbed this practice the convergence culture industry, in which it is fan activity, not passivity, that drives and maintains the value of cultural commodities. At the same time that fan has moved beyond the confines of popular culture to become a general figure of political and cultural life and participation, the platform formerly known as Twitter is dominated by Elon Musk fanboys who rush to defend his increasingly erratic actions. Therapists have had to adjust to the way in which Taylor Swift has become the dominant cultural force in the lives of young women. Last but not least, Trump rallies seem to be both fan service and rallies around the particular cult of personality of Trump. The fan has become a cultural, political, and economic force in our society. What has caused this transformation? What does it mean for us? And what can be done about it? All right, do you want me to ask you the definitional question, or do you want to just make fun of me right out of the gate? I'll make fun of you right out of the gate. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> So, as fans of the show know, we have to begin with what we call the Lee Johnson question, which is a variant <laughs> of the Plato question, which is, what is a fan and what is fan culture? And I guess I want to answer that by taking a little bit of a historical overview that I already alluded to, which begins with Horkheimer and Adorno's famous chapter from the Doctrine of Enlightenment on the culture industry and their general criticism, in which they write in that piece... The attitude of the public, which ostensibly and actually favors the system of the culture industry, is a part of the system and not an excuse for it. Basically, they're arguing that fans and consumers of culture are in some sense produced along with that culture. It produces their habits, their tastes, and it produces them in an increasingly negative way. I mean, elsewhere, Adorno refers to culture industry as baby food, the permanent self-reflection based upon infantile compulsion towards a repetition of needs which it creates in the first place. That, mm. you know, the thing about baby food is, as babies can tell us, if you eat bland <laughs> and soft baby food your entire life, you get used to baby food and anything else seems like a total shock to the system. <laughs> and that's how they saw the culture industry is that it produces stuff. You get used to just that stuff and you only want to eat that stuff. And it dulls and dampens your ability to consume or appreciate anything else. And I think that image of culture kind of dominated the fan. Fans were seen as stooges. Mm. I mean, it's one thing to watch a TV show when you're tired and at the end of your day, but it's another thing to get all invested in it. You were seen as kind of an idiot and a fool for it. And to some extent, that image persists. Fans are still people you can make fun of, even though they've become, I think, much more culturally dominant than they once were. 
And then that image got criticized. And the most famous figure of that was Michel de Certeau in his The Practice of Everyday Life. And he coined this notion of a kind of poaching and really pointed out that how something is produced and how something is used are two very different things. Mm. You see this in public parks. The park is designed with particular pathways, but there's always an unofficial pathway where people have <laughs> taken the same shortcut again and again, and that gets worn down. And so use is different than consumption. Desertos, or people like Harry Jenkins use this to make sense of culture in general, that people use culture in a way different than it's produced and their use creates a meaning which might not initially be there, but is meaningful and purposeful for them. So becoming a Trekkie is as much a creative act as it is a passive kind of act. I mean, I really want to tie philosophy into this because I feel like there's an interesting intersection for me of cultural studies and philosophy, but also this debate between the fan is passivity or the fan is activity. The fan is something that's produced by the culture industry or the fan is something that produces their own use of the culture industry has kind of gone back and forth in people who study culture for a long time. You know, this is the Jason Reed response to the Lee Johnson question. <laughs> On the one hand, the fan is a passive stooge. On the other hand, the fan is an active producer. Lee told us that you and I only get one hand. Yeah, I was just about to say that myself. <laughs> so two things come to mind, Jason. First is I learned that landscape architects call that making of paths that people do in public parks, the path they make, they call the path of desire. Mm, uh, I like that. Yeah. My campus is full of paths of desire. Yeah. And what's so strange <laughs> about them is they become regularized, right? It's not just mm -hmm. like people are walking all over, but someone decides, wait a second, it would be much better if I go here. And then everyone just keeps using that same path. But secondly, nowhere in your Reedian definition did you ever talk about fanaticism, mm. because this is the origin of the word fan, right? Originally, right. they were fanatics. And it seems to me that in the active sense and in the passive sense, one thing that characterizes a fan as different from someone who just enjoys it or is appreciative is that there's a certain obsessive fanaticism about it. And I think your William Shatner example in the introduction shows this, right? Because when I think about my own life, the first group that I would call fans of culture rather than sports were Trekkies because mm -hmm. they were really obsessive. And in that sketch, the Trekkies are saying to him, you know, in episode seven, when you were about to transport, what were you thinking about at that moment? And he gets so frustrated by all of this, he finally says, as you say, get a life. And he also <laughs> says, move out of your parents' basement. <laughs> so do you think that there's some element of fanaticism that belongs to being a fan? Yeah, I mean, I think so. And I think being a fan of a mass-produced commodity is a strangely quixotic sort of enterprise because it means something unique to you, but its definition as something that's mass-produced and out there for everyone means that it is out there for everyone and not everyone is going to share that sensibility. And so you're in this sort of weird attempt to kind of maintain a unique relationship to something which by definition is not unique, mm. is out there for tons of people. Right? This is why I think that part of the fanaticism is a misplaced attachment. That these things, to go back to the Shatner skit, these things 
are out there to be enjoyed, but your path of desire is taking you past regular everyday enjoyment into something else, something pathological. I'd like to come back to Rick's distinction between culture and sports because, I mean, for a couple of reasons. When Jason first suggested our doing an episode on fan culture, my immediate response was, oh, great, we're going to talk about sports. And then when I read his outline, there was like literally zero things about sports. (laughs) And I was confused. But really, is that so surprising? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Maybe not. But I do think that sports are also cultural production. I don't think mm-hmm. that we can so easily make that distinction. I also think sports are a really helpful thing to look at in relation to this question of fanaticism, right? Because the fanaticism of sports fans is often not just about the cultural production. It's not just about the football game or the football team, just to use football as an example. It's also about being a Bostonian. And yes, I chose Boston on purpose. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a way of understanding oneself as a part of a community, a cultural pride. You know, there's all these things wrapped up in it that are mm-hmm. not just about the thing that you're fanatical about. Right. I agree with you that clearly sports are cultural productions for sure. And they are commodities that we consume. I think the feedback loop that Jason was hinting at, namely, I become a fan of a sports team, and then the sports team starts doing things to respond to the fandom that it has produced. Mm -hmm. All of that is an aspect of sports. And also, I say I'm a Cubs fan, but I'm not a fanatic in that I couldn't even tell you who their starting pitchers are this season. I'm not sure today exactly what their record is. And so I'm not slavishly following them, Mm -hmm. but they're the team that I would prefer to watch whenever a game's on, I try to catch it. And I am a fan of them opposed to the Chicago White Sox. And there's a clear difference between Cubs fans and Sox fans in Chicago. So I think I am not a fan in the sense of the fanaticism that goes along with it. Although I kind of am a fan in the sense you were pointing to, Lee, if someone criticizes my people, that is the Chicago Cubs, then I'm going to come after you. We get to criticize our own team, but you just Mm -hmm. back off, especially if you're a Boston Red Sox fan. I mean, I think that's a good example. I also wouldn't call you a White Sox fan. Wait, Cubs. Cubs fan. I also wouldn't call you <laughs> Bite a Cubs your tongue. <laughs> I also wouldn't call you a Cubs fan in the way that you just described Cubs fans. But one of the things that happens in sports is that fandom allows us to create this imaginary us and them, you know, with right. other mm-hmm. communities. I don't think that you're actually a Cubs fan because of the cultural production of baseball. I think you're a Cubs fan when a Red Sox fan comes up to you (laughs) and says, go Red Sox. And then suddenly, right, like you're a Cubs fan, which just really means you're a Chicagoan, right? Like, you know, you're a fan of the Chicago community. Philadelphia, of course, the Phillies are Mm -hmm. the Philly fanatics, right? I mean, like, Mm -hmm. they just elide these differences altogether and say, (laughs) like, this is what it means to be a Philadelphian. (laughs) 
Well, and my brother-in-law, Dave, he's a fan of Michigan, all sports, but particularly football. But he's a fan in the real sense. If they win and he's sitting in this chair, he's sitting in that chair every (laughs) single game. Mm -hmm. If he's not watching, he's sure they're going to lose. So he has to watch to make sure they win. He gets furious whenever they do lose. So I think he's a fan in the full sense of fandom. Yeah, I admit that sports fans didn't fit into my picture, and that may be for personal reasons, because I was raised by, well, my father and my grandfather are both Boston Red Sox fans, and it seemed to only bring pain into their lives. And then I grew up outside of Cleveland, if you know anything about Cleveland, up until recently, you know, with LeBron James. Cleveland has been nothing but pain following all of its professional sports teams. So for me, I never gravitated towards that. But the other reason beyond the biographical why it doesn't quite fit my mental picture of it is that in a weird way, I always feel like sports fans have a kind of element of cultural legitimation that other fans don't really have. Like every major newspaper has a sports section. Every television network news has a section dedicated to sports. It's taken for granted that it's almost of general interest, like how the team is doing. Is it going to consider trading this person? You know, I mean, that same sort of information is available for television shows, movies, etc. Like, are they going to recast this actor? Who are they going to get to play Scotty in Strange New Worlds? That information is out there that would be of interest to a fan of that show, but it's carried mostly in niche publications, fan publications. To me, part of the overlap between the general, you live in the city, you want to know how the sports team is doing, and the fan makes the sports fan a different thing because it is considered to be part of civic belonging in our society. But wait, two of our magazines of national record, I mean, People and us, I mean, U.S. Weekly, they are (laughs) devoted to exactly these kinds of things. Yeah, and every newspaper has a culture section. Well, culture section, yes. Well, but what is that? Is it music, theater, art, movies? Well, first of all, People and U.S. Weekly are more about celebrities than they are about fans. Mm. They're more about these people as people, not their roles. I mean, two things definitely overlap. This is an odd argument to make because part of the point I do want to make is that the marginalization of a certain kind of fan culture has become more mainstream. Mm -hmm. That the division between fan culture and mainstream culture has broken down in some way. Mm -hmm. Comic-Con has become a reported on event where it's news about new movies that are going to be released and new trailers that come out have taken on a more mainstream significance than formerly. I do want to congratulate you on the odd choice of deciding whether something is legitimate or not by does it have its own section in a newspaper? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's that's not a terrible criteria. would suck right now? A commercial. Just imagine the witty and entertaining philosophical banter being interrupted with an ad for MailChimp. That sucks. Well, you can help us keep ad-free and free by supporting us with a donation. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hotelbarsessions, and there you can sign up to make a monthly donation at several different levels. If you'd prefer to make a one-time donation or make sporadic gifts when you're able, just visit our website at hotelbarpodcast.com 
and there you'll find links to support the podcast through Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App. Cheers. So Jason, in the previous section, when you were talking about legitimate fans and illegitimate fans or fans that have been authorized by society and fans that haven't, it seems like you were very clearly pointing to the fact that there are some really niche cultures of fanatics. And I'm wondering if you have an example of one particularly niche culture of fanaticism that you think has moved to the mainstream. Well, I think one example is the mainstreaming of comic book movies. Yeah. Comic book fans have moved to the mainstream. Mm. And it's a strange sort of mainstreaming because as these things have gone from niche interests to multi-billion dollar movies, there's a strange sore winners phenomena. Like every time someone speaks out against comic book movies as an art form, as Martin Scorsese has done more than once, the fans rally to the defense as Mm. if the idea that these things are not true films is seen as incredibly horrendous and offensive. And so fans do a lot of work of policing what can be said about things. Another big example of that is the whole Gamergate thing of 2014, 2015, which was strange because, as many people pointed out, gamers and video gaming has clamored to be taken seriously as an art form for a long time. And then when people started taking them seriously and writing things like feminist criticisms of games, which is part of what it means for something to be taken seriously as subject to criticism, the sort of response was, well, not like that, right? And it turned into, I'm not going to be able to retail the entire details of it, but it turned into an incredibly vicious online harassment of... Women journalists. <laughs> women journalists. Yeah. And even game developers. Women And yeah. game developers. I mean, so much so that I remember I happened to be at Utah Valley University giving a talk when one of the journalists targeted was supposed to give a talk in the next couple of days. It was canceled because the university said they could not guarantee her safety. Mm. <sighs> I mean, that's how vicious it became. And in some sense, I mean, what interests me here is about the way in which There's a mobilization of fan allegiance around some truly abhorrent aspects of our society and culture. I mean, some of this happens, I think, in the name of a strange nostalgia. Like, say, for example, one of the things that's happened a lot around fans is these cultural commodities. A lot of the big comic book characters were created in the 60s or before the 30s. A lot of these things came out in a time when, given the politics of that time, most of their characters were scripted to be white and or male. And so the nostalgic attachment to the original appearance of these characters gets intertwined with alt-right racism and sexism, where when it's announced that when the film comes out, they're going to replace this formerly white character with someone of color or going to change out a male character for a woman. This strange nostalgic attachment to the commodities of one's past ends up intertwining very easily with a nostalgic investment in the political representations of the past. I want to go back to where you started that because something occurred to me about your raising of culture studies earlier on. For me, one of the main hallmarks of culture studies as a discipline is that it attempts to eliminate the distinction between high culture and low culture. It will look at rock and roll just as seriously as Beethoven's Last Quartets. It will look at movies just as seriously as Shakespeare's plays. 
fandom expanding seems to be a way in which popular culture has also attempted to just blow through the distinction between high and low culture. And so if I'm a little monster, so these are Gaga's fans, if I'm a little monster, part of what I'm doing in being a little monster is saying, screw you, symphony orchestra. This is every bit as good as what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But at that moment, now there's a flip in cultural studies because the moment you take that seriously, theoretically, and you lay on top of Lady Gaga a whole theoretical level, you've actually turned my popular culture into high culture, and I don't like it. So I'm going to come after Mm -hmm. you for turning (laughs) Gaga into Beethoven. Mm. And so the more recent pervasiveness of fan cultures and their mainstreaming of fan cultures comes along with an insistence that there is no distinction between high and low culture. All of those things which formerly were called low culture are valuable artworks produced in similar ways that paintings and symphonies and poetry and so on is being produced. And we don't need then this distinction anymore. And we don't need your elite theories coming to tell us what this is all about. First of all, it's a very Adorno point in some sense, because I think Adorno was very clear that the culture industry is neither high culture, which has its challenge and its difficulties. Adorno's a famous fan of high modernism and literature and his musical tastes. But he also talks about how it's not popular true folk culture either. And folk culture has a subversiveness to it that the culture industry doesn't produce. And everything tends towards this kind of middle And I think you're pointing to a similar kind of middle where the whole gesture of the fan is take this seriously, but take it seriously not in the way in which quote-unquote high culture is taken seriously, be studied, analyzed, criticized. It's like a meet me in the middle where the passion of a pop culture, garbage culture is seen to be the model of seriousness. Mm. It's supposed to be taken seriously in a particular way. And as Susan Scott in her book, Fake Geek Girls, makes it clear, the brands then have an interest in this policing as well, because they see fans as the frontline soldiers maintaining the integrity and the idea of what the brand is supposed to be, Mm. and how particular types of cultural activity or fan activity are celebrated but other kinds have to be cast out because they're seen as jeopardizing the value of the brand. Jason, since you stole my question, what is a fan? <laughs> I'm going to steal Rick's question, which is what is a fan not? You know, right. so instead of asking what is a fan, I'm going to ask a fan as opposed to what. And I think that we can distinguish between what I might call a fan and a supporter. Or if we understand a supporter as a fan, a fan and a fanatic, right? Mm -hmm. I want to float this hypothesis and see what you guys think. I want to say that sports fandom or sports fanaticism is the model for fandom today. So what I think is unique about sports fandom is that it's primarily about establishing an us and a them. Mm. We understand ourselves more and more our loyalties are deepened mm. by our separation from them. Mm. So not proud to admit this, but I went to college in the very early 90s 
And again, not proud to admit it, went to several fish shows on the road, (laughs) traveled with friends. So I'm talking about this band fish, if you're not from the 90s. It's like Grateful Dead-ish or Jimmy Buffett-ish sort of stuff. I mean, fish fans at the time were fans of fish. They were supporters of fish. But there was no real investment in people who didn't like fish. You know, like the loyalties and the kind of community identity was only deepened by your fandom, by how many shows you've been to, by how many B tracks you knew, et cetera, et cetera. Now, when I compare that to, for example, Jason mentioned earlier at the top of the episode, Trump rallies, like to be a fan of Trump is as much about who isn't a fan, is to be Mm. other than people who aren't. To be a fan of, I mean, even something as simple as like true crime television or avocados or cilantro, (laughs) you know, I mean, like it's about distinguishing yourself from that other group. And that I think is all built on the model of sports. An interesting example of this, Lee, is PC versus Mac. Yeah, right. (laughs) That then extends to Android versus iOS and so on. I mean, allow me to say, these are fucking computers. So like, <laughs> what is it to be a fan? It's to belong to the Apple community. That's what it is. <laughs> exactly. And to distinguish yeah. yourself from everyone who's not. And it was and continues to be so strange to me that there's an Apple fandom. They are fanatics, even though they can't tell what's better about their Mac than my Dell XPS 13, except that it has an Apple logo on it and therefore cost three times as much. So I agree that the fan is defined by an us and them relation. But the one place where I think fandom, at least in popular culture, differs from sports fans, at least I understand it, is that I've known sports fans who are incredibly loyal to the team, but are incredibly critical of the current management, Mm. whoever, coach. And one of the things that I think defines contemporary fan culture is the only possible relationship is an affirmative one. You know, there was a piece not too long ago in the New York Times about these new film critics on TikTok and how they really differentiate themselves from film critics in general because they said film critics are always looking for things to point out that are wrong, to criticize. We just want to celebrate. We just want to see these things as having fun, right? Mm. And there's this popular meme, which is this cartoon of someone saying, let people enjoy things. There's a sense in which I think a lot of contemporary fan culture is this idea that I don't agree with, that to criticize something is to have a negative relationship and to like something is only a positive relationship to it. And this idea that if you want to analyze and criticize something, you necessarily have the wrong relationship to it, right? That enjoyment is seen as an unthinking, unreflective enjoyment. And it seems to me the sports fan can be both a fan and a critic at the same time, where the modern fan is a fan but cannot be a critic I'm going to be honest. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think that like Taylor Swift fans can also criticize things that Taylor Swift does or says, but they are going to separate their criticism from non-fans of Taylor Swift. Like, I think the same thing is true with Game of Thrones fans. I think the same thing is true of literally anything. It's still the case that the us and them is the most important distinction. Yeah, there's this whole saying, it's like, I can talk about how ugly my dog is, but you can't talk about how (laughs) ugly my dog is. (laughs) So I'm not sure that I think that's true. As a matter of fact, I would even go so far as to say that 
If you're a fan who is totally uncritical, who is just everything is right, everything is positive, that real fans would say that you're not a fan. Mm. There was a time not that long ago that the Chicago Cubs were pretty good, good enough that they won the World Series. But just before that... <laughs> he says like that wasn't like a once in a century thing. <laughs> Never you mind. <laughs> Details, details. And for a couple of seasons before that, you know, they would make it into the playoffs. And there was one really heartbreaking time where they lost in the playoff game. And people who are not Cubs fans, they would call me and they'd be like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. That was awful and so on. But Cubs fans, when that loss happens, the first thing we say to one another is we're going to get them next year. Mm-hmm. And maybe that comes after 100 years of losing. But there's a sense in which Cubs fans used to, until relatively recently, not be defined by this us versus them. We were supporters of the Cubs. We weren't really critical because we were just supporting them. And OK, they're not great and whatever. They're our team. It doesn't hurt that they have one of the most beautiful ballparks in the entire country, and it's just a wonderful place to go and have a $15 beer and (laughs) sit outside and watch some people play a game. But I think you're right, Lee, that it has come to be almost uniquely an us versus them distinction in fandoms. And therefore, I'm not a fan, I think, of really anything. I'm not sure what it is that I would say defines me as opposed to anyone else. But I think you're right that in a way there is a sense of I'm an Apple fan and therefore I'm not an Android fan or I'm a Trump fan and therefore I'm not a fan of anything else. Um, (laughs) I hate all y'all. And I think that really has come to dominate fan culture and fandom in general. Yeah. And this was the hypothesis that I was trying to float a few minutes ago is that I believe the way that we understand fan culture in relation to cultural products has moved more towards the sports model and away from the, I don't know, like the, I'm a fan of something if I like it, or I'm a fan of something if I'm a supporter Mm. of it. And if I could just tack on one addendum to that hypothesis, I also think because of that, and this is getting back to Jason's earlier point about fans both being produced by culture And producing culture is as a consequence of that move towards the us-them sports model, the antagonistic Mm -hmm. sports model, the cultural producers have learned that they have to, in a way, weaponize their fans Mm -hmm. to maintain them as fans. Mm -hmm. And I think Taylor Swift is actually a really good example of this. Taylor Swift, several times in the last year, last few years really, has called out other women publicly for, I mean, really, for the most part, just hurting her feelings and saying they're not really feminists. And, of course, the Taylor Swift fandom goes crazy and attacks these people. And it's really, I mean, just from the outside looking in, I'm not a Taylor Swift fan, but it just looks like you got your feelings hurt and you weaponized your fan base. Mm-hmm. to, I don't know, like to feel better? And you're I don't saying know. that, I start thinking that I can't imagine fans of other things or of other people acting in a similar way. Well, Trump does that, right? Trump like, certainly does it, yeah. Yeah, but I, I mean, mean, I got indicted, so, right, <laughs> you know. Right, no, I agree with you. But what I mean, let me put it in a positive way. I think there are some examples of either cultural products or cultural personas that... 
I can't imagine such a negative fandom gathering around them. Well, your example of Fish, right? Fish is an example of a fandom that I think really is a fandom because these people sometimes give up their lives and travel around and watch Fish like they did The Grateful Dead. You know, you could probably describe pretty accurately what the Fish fan is wearing and what their other accoutrements are that accompany it. But I can't imagine like some member of the band says something about, I don't know, Tom Waits, and all of a sudden <laughs> the, the fish fans are all attacking Tom Waits and doxing him and swatting him <laughs> and, you know, standing out in front of his house. I think that's fair. I mean, here's where I would maybe distinguish between a fan culture in the sense that I'm talking about it now, like based on the sports model and us them culture. And at least a definition of a kind of cultish following, right? Because Mm -hmm. obviously we can think of cults that are us, them cults, but more often cults are just entirely insular, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it's just kind of like the more you're with us, the more you're with us. Right. And it doesn't have to involve a being against anyone else. Right. I think the us and them around fan culture is constantly in danger of breaking down or it's very ambivalent because people want people to love the same thing they want. And this is a very Spinoza's idea, but they want them to love it in the same way they do. Right. You know, the famous story of like you see someone wearing a band T-shirt. This is more in the world of hunk fandom or obscure bands. And you walk up to them and say, oh, you like them? Name three songs, right? Yeah. We want to make sure that they have the same relationship to the thing that you do in order for them to belong. So the us and them is constantly at risk of breaking down between the true outsiders, like fans of something else, and then the not real fans internal to the fan base. So it becomes a bizarre sociality around a shared love because, as I was saying earlier, I think at the core... People do have their own unique responses to things, and that's what's driving it. But no one else is going to have your own unique response Mm. to that thing. Mm. I like that example that you just gave of someone who says, oh, you're a fan, well, name three bands. Because to me, that marks that difference between a kind of cultish follower and a fanatic. Because if I say to you, oh, you love whatever, fish, name three songs, and you can't, I don't see you as a them. I just see you as not an us, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't actually belong to the cult. But if I say to you, give me three reasons why Trump is not the best president ever, and you give me three reasons, I think most fanatics, like Trump fanatics, are going to say, you're an enemy. You're them. I mean, what's interesting about Trump and MAGAism is that it is really, from the beginning, as a cultural product, defined oppositionally. One might say a similar thing about punk, right? That punk, in a certain way, from the beginning, is defined oppositionally. The difference is punk is just opposed to everything, and Trump (laughs) is not opposed to everything because he's not opposed to himself in a way that punk was also opposed to itself, right? Yeah, isn't the most punk thing to not say, I'm a fan of punk? (laughs) Exactly, right. And the moment you say, oh, that band is punk, then they're going to start singing ballads, you know? (laughs) But there are some cultural products that are produced oppositionally, and then there are others that become the basis of of defining an opposition. And coming to be defined as an opposition, 
that's all I think the work of the fans and not the work of the producers. I think mm -hmm. it's the fans who then gather themselves around this and perhaps have a community independent of it, but this becomes the object that, to use a technical psychoanalytic term, they cathect onto. They mm. stick and attach all of their communal interests onto this one object or person or thing. Did you know that Hotel Bar Podcast is more than just a podcast? We are a fully online cross-brand synergy platform of content creation. Actually, that's not true. Those words are meaningless. But you can follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. There you can find the handles of all the co-hosts as well. You can follow us all or pick your favorite. If by the time you hear this, Elon Musk has burned down the servers to collect the insurance, you can also find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just look for Hotel Bar Sessions. Wherever you find us on social media, you can contact us with ideas, complaints, and questions. You can also email us anytime at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com or visit our interactive page at hotelbarpodcast.com. No matter how you get in contact with us, we're always glad to hear from you. Jason, in the last segment, you gave almost a direct quote from Spinoza's Ethics. That made me think, are you a Spinoza fanboy? <laughs> I have a tattoo. You can't see it on the podcast. But yeah, I mean, I do think that's fair. But in asking that question or trying to answer that question, I'm wondering, are we trying to come up with a different model of what it means to be a fan. Because so far, I think our picture of a fan has been fairly negative, not just in terms of specific things, Trump, etc., but in terms of the particular kind of sociality it involves with this antagonistic dimension as first and foremost. And I don't know. I mean, I stumbled with this question because I thought about philosophy as fan fiction. And this is something that, you know, talk about us and them. There's a division internal to philosophy, analytic and continental. We're all on the continental side of things. And I remember once when I was in grad school, an analytic philosopher, I'm not going to name, said, when I go into a continental person's house, I invariably see they have a picture or something of some philosopher. You guys are all fans. Mm. And we're not fans, we're like doing real philosophy or whatever the case may be. <laughs> That's more than we can get into right here. But the question for me is, can you be a fan of something and use that fandom to create something other than just a tribute to the thing you're a fan of? Because I think that's the question for me about philosophy. Can you be a fan of a philosopher, but not in the way that you're just writing their fanfic for them? Like constantly writing, this is why you should read this philosopher, this is why this philosopher is important, and so on, which is a kind of fanfic, I think. Can I just interrupt here for a second? Because sure. I've never read fanfic, and I only know that it stands for fan fiction. Can you explain to me what fan fiction is? Sure. Well, fan fiction is when you write fiction using established characters from an ongoing or not necessarily ongoing series. So that people write Star Trek stories. People have produced entire Star Trek films sometimes and this is the thing that blows my mind sometimes even with stars from the initial not the big stars 
not Shatner or Nimoy, Kirk and Spock, but they've actually cast characters and funded entire fan films. You can find them on YouTube. Okay. So it's when people use existing properties, I would say, to create their own stories in the vein of those existing stories. Now, of course, it's tricky because some of the most famous fan fiction is very much subversive. Right? The most famous fan fiction, I think, and maybe it's famous because cultural studies talked about it a lot, is the writing that people did, so-called slash fan fiction, which usually focuses on a relationship, romantic or sexual, between two characters who may or may not have one in the actual series. And the most famous example of this is love stories between Kirk and Spock of Star Trek. Yeah, I was going to say that fan fiction also runs the gamut from what I would call just straight pornography, but using the characters from a TV show, a novel, a movie, what have you, all the way to producing entirely new stories just set in that universe and taking that universe in a different direction. Or, Lee, as you mentioned in your rave this week, looking at a cultural product and thinking it through so carefully that you realize there's a problem that you then come to try to solve by explaining that this was all in the head of Ali Sheedy's character. Right. So I think fan fiction both comes out of what I would call a at least neurotic, if not pathological, relation to a cultural object. And so you're writing straight up porn or a more productive and less neurotic and less pathological so that you're advancing the story, you're telling a background of the story, but you're producing something almost equivalent, if not actually equivalent, to the product on which it's based. Okay, I think I got it now. So Jason, when you're implicitly asking the question, is philosophy or continental philosophy fanfic then you're saying it might be the case that when I borrow a world or a structure from Derrida, for example, which I do, and deconstruct something, that actually what I'm doing is fan fiction. I'm just borrowing the world, the characters, the structure, and tweaking it a little bit such that it suits this new story, even if it's not fiction. That's the question, I think. I got it. That's the question. And of course, the question needs to be put in question, to be a little Derridian about it. At the same time I'm saying this, the division between fan fiction and fiction has become incredibly more porous, right? There are famous authors, like the Fifty Shades of Grey person, started out as writing Twilight fan fiction. Mm -hmm. For some people, it does become a gateway to creating something else. But I guess when I said that, there are... I'm not going to name names, but there are people in philosophy who I do feel like their sort of return to the same figure again and again and again begins to look like fan fiction. Now I want you to name names. <laughs> I will go even further, and for reasons that will be obvious, I am not going to name names. There are people writing philosophy, not just taking the world of another philosopher, but trying to write it in their very voice. Mm. And I think philosophers with a fairly unique vocabulary and voice, Derrida would be one of them, Heidegger would be another one, Deleuze would be another one, that there are a number of people, I think, in our world who are basically writing fan fiction. That is, they're borrowing the world, but they're also speaking the language and using the style and manner of a particular philosopher. Well, I mean, this may be fan fiction, but I'm going to borrow from a really famous Derrida essay here, which was titled Monolingualism, where Derrida basically says, I speak 
one language, but it's not my own. I guess my question here is, isn't everything that we do or say or enact or perform a reflection of our fandoms? I mean, Mm -hmm. none of us are original voices, original beings, original actors, right? Like we're all shaped in many ways by these influences that may not be called fandoms, but you know, may not not be called right. fandoms. Right. If I speak about myself, so this I'm sure is going to be surprising to both of you, but I kind of like and have an interest in Adorno. <laughs> it's not that I am not critical of Adorno, But it is the case that when he says nasty things, for example, about jazz, I'm going to take a minute and I'm going to say, okay, wait a second. Is there a way in which he's not saying what he seems to be saying, first of all? And secondly, is there a way in which this could be understood such that he's not making the claim that everyone understands him to say? Mm -hmm. Now, that gesture of doing that for Adorno is not something I would ever do, for example, in relation to Heidegger. Heidegger says one thing about international Jewry and the black notebooks, and I just read it at face value. It's just anti-Semitic bullshit like all the rest of Heidegger's philosophy. Now, that difference between my reading of Adorno and my reading of Heidegger, I think in part has to be characterized as a kind of fandom. And presumably... Adorno, when he wrote the piece that you're referencing, was also producing a kind of fandom of his influences. For sure. Yeah. So it sounds like what we're saying is all cultural productions are productions of fandom. And to get back to Jason's original point, what I think Jason is trying to point to is the way in which the fandoms themselves produce fans of a certain type now. And maybe we should be concerned about that type and fandom becomes itself a cultural product. Right, so right. it's no longer that I'm producing this movie and then hoping there will be a fandom, but I'm producing the fandom directly. But Lee, I just want to hit this before we let it slide without noting it. I hear part of your argument as saying, if we accept, as you've put forward many times on this podcast, that the self just is performativity it is just performative. At least one of the things we mean by performative is I'm performing something that is not my own. It's influencing me from elsewhere. So in that sense, the self just really is a fan, a bundle of fandoms. (laughs) My next book title is going to be a bundle of fandoms. I I agree on this general point that in some sense it's fandom all the way down or fanfic all the way down, that it's all about repetition. But I would add the necessary sort of caveat to that, given that we're always dealing with this citation and transformation, there are lots of different ways to decide when the transformation becomes a decisive transformation, Mm. right? I mean, religion has one, you know, heresy is just bad religious fanfic. Mm. And philosophy has one too. I mean, there are certain points where a philosopher is no longer seen as an interpreter of another philosopher and they break out on their own. You know, at some point, Marx ceases to be Hegelian and becomes Marx. And to me, it seems that fandom is a particular way of navigating that relationship between repetition and transformation. But the problematic thing about fandom is that it's one oriented primarily around maintaining brand value on the one hand. And then secondly, given the way in which it has its nostalgic element, that brand value gets intertwined with a version of the past that is regressive. Mm. Yeah, I think maybe that point is 
where I slightly disagree with you because I do think fandom is about maintaining the us and them. And that includes its own histories, genealogies and legacies, and that it's not as attached to the product, the cultural product or whatever, as I think you want to focus on. But, you know, maybe this is a ticky tack point. I don't know if you all heard this, but this song that recently had skyrocketed to the top 100, Rich Men North of Richmond. Yes. Yeah. So apparently Billy Bragg has tweaked it just ever so subtly. Of course he has. To (laughs) now contain a union message within it. Yeah. I haven't heard his version, so I don't know tonally and harmonically, you know, how similar they are. But there's a way in which that could be described as a kind of fandom that is also transformational, right? Mm. So your sentiment here and here and here, this is all good, this is all good. But now let me take you one step that you didn't even notice belonged to your cultural production. And suddenly there is power at a union, to quote another right. Billy Bragg song. I believe it's called Rich Men North of a Million. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I love Billy Bragg. the hotel bar, Rick, Jason, and I like to pour philosophy straight into your ears. We're an independent and ad-free podcast, and we'd like to keep it that way. But the only way we can do that is with listener support. You can help us defray some of our production costs by signing up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. There are several levels of monthly donations there that you can sign up for, and every one of them helps us keep raising our glasses to deep conversations. If you'd prefer to make a one-time donation or several one-time donations, just visit our website at hotelbarpodcast.com where you can find links to support the podcast through Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App, and you can keep enjoying our tipsy philosophy and sobering insights. All right, guys, so as much as I am fans of you and fans of this bar, it looks like our bartender is not fans of us staying past last call. So we have got to roll on out of here. But while we're drinking our last drinks, let me ask you guys, first, do you have any final thoughts, obviously, but I also want to know what you think you are fans of. Jason, I'll go to you first. Yeah, that's tough because I'm fans of a lot of things, but in some things I feel like the fandom has made me less of a fan. Mm -hmm. Like I still am a comic book kid at heart, but watching the Marvel Cinematic Universe take shape and take cultural dominance has made me less of a fan. Although I still think there are interesting things happening in the medium of comics that just have nothing to do with superheroes anymore. Whereas other things, I mean, like Star Trek Strange New Worlds has made me more of a Trek fan than I used to be because it has acknowledged the thing that made me like it in the first place. Similarly, I'm still a fan of punk, but not the commercialization of it that happened in the last 20 or so years. Yeah. Well, in terms of final thoughts, I just want to say that this relationship between fandom and performance and selfhood is something that I'm going to think a long time about, because I think it's a really interesting way to think about both the positive and the negative possibilities of being a fan and fandom and fan culture. Because let me just say, 
the self is not just all unicorns pooping rainbows. Like we do <laughs> nasty things to ourselves in the construction of a self. So that I think was a really important moment that I'm going to have to think long and hard about. In terms of my own fanhood, it turns out I'm culturally incredibly promiscuous. <laughs> Therefore, I don't know that I count as a fan of anything. I will say there was a time in which in tennis, I was an Andre Agassi fan in the sense of a fanatic. Mm. You know, I thought Pete Sampras was a cold machine who didn't really play tennis. He just came and pummeled the ball, smash ball hard. <laughs> and Andre Agassi could actually put together a stroke. Similarly, I was a huge fan of Venus Williams as opposed to anyone else who was playing the game at the time. But I've sort of lost track of the contemporary tennis world. So in that sense, I don't know that I'm really a fan of anything. Yeah. What about you, Lee? Well, I'm going to do it in reverse. I'll tell you what I'm a fan of first. I'm a fan of SEC football, Derrida, and musical theater. <laughs> Those are my us-them distinctions. <laughs> but in terms of final thoughts, you know, Jason has given me a lot to think about here. Like I said, I came into this episode really thinking about fandom in terms of sports. I'm not sure I've been totally dissuaded of that prejudice, but I do like the way that Jason is asking us to think about the way that fandom itself has been reshaped as culture and cultural productions have become more active mm. and reactive in the production of their fans and the existence of their fandom. And speaking of fans and fandom, I would just like to thank all of our fans, particularly the ones who support us on Patreon and any of you who have left a review on the podcast platform that you use. We really appreciate all of you who listen and all of you who support us in the ways that you do. And we're fans of yours, too. <laughs> Rick is making that like millennial finger heart sign, two hands like, <laughs> come together. All right, guys, who's giving us a ride home? I'm a big fan of Uber. Ooh. I'm more of a Lyft fan myself. Ooh, yeah. You're an other to me. Like, let's go with Lyft. All right. Bye, guys. Bye.